you will see that the chart, at least those that are close enough to see it, says considering the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but your card says the indwelling of deity. They're one and the same. But I will say to you that uh, I'm the one that made up the titles for the lesson, so... What I hope to do in our lesson this morning, this afternoon, I'll do that all day, so please forgive me. What I hope to do is show how in unison we have the indwelling of deity, and I hope I'll be able to show you how that works in Scripture. So we're not just talking about the Holy Spirit this morning or this afternoon, we'll be talking about how that works together with other passages that talk about the indwelling of God and the indwelling of, of Christ. I'm really, and I hope I've expressed this before, but I'm sincerely thankful for the opportunity to be here this weekend. And I realize as I look over my notes and I think about things that I've said that there has been uh, a fair amount of repetition in the things that we've said. And I really didn't know how to present the ideas that we wanted to get across in all the facets without doing some of that. And I don't think it's harmful because uh, repetition is a good way for us to learn. And Peter said, you know, I say these things to you by the way of remembrance. He means I've said it before, so uh, you're hearing it again. But, and when we look at the Holy Spirit as a whole, the invitation to me was to speak on the Holy Spirit. And a lot of latitude was given to me in choosing what aspects of the Holy Spirit to talk about, and I, and I really do appreciate that. But there's a lot more that we could have talked about. I don't know how many outlines I have uh, or notes that I have on the Holy Spirit, but I can tell you just one single series of lessons that I have had 18 lessons in it. So we talked about 18 different things in in the Holy Spirit. So don't think we've covered or exhausted the subject of the Holy Spirit. I do need to tell you that, uh, again, the, today, that I'm going to try to uh, pretty much limit myself to the American Standard version of Scripture. So if you see a difference between whatever uh, version that you're using and what I'm saying, that's the difference that you'll have. I'm going to present today my understanding and conviction concerning the biblical subject of the indwelling of deity. And I realize when I begin this that it is a subject that's had a considerable amount of controversy, uh, especially over the last 40 or 45 years. I don't want this to be a controversial lesson, by the way. I'm just saying that I'm going to present some things and in balance, I'm going to try to say why there are certain things that I accept and certain things I do not accept in, in, in the question. I mentioned earlier that uh, there's been a paradigm shift in the thinking, especially upon the indwelling of, of deity uh, over the last, uh, you know, 45 or 50 years. And I'll try to show you why I think that happened. And I'm not going to go into all the details or the research that I've done to show that. 
But I think you could write a book on that, what, what happened and why it happened. But it's often just not addressed. But it is a legitimate Bible topic. The Bible addresses it, so we need to, in declaring the whole counsel of God, be willing to address the question and try to figure out what the Bible has to say. And I want to say this before I begin this morning. You may not agree with all I say. And guess what? I'm not going to be upset with you if you don't agree with all I say. Because here's what I find in the New Testament. It's pretty evident to me that there were situations and times in which Christians did not understand the purpose and means and, and work of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just throw out one quick passage to you to, to confirm that. Uh, Acts 19. So there was some confusion there about what was going on, wasn't there? So could we expect that Christians today might not all be on the same page at the same time? In, in this issue. I do think it's an important issue, and I think we need to try to figure it out and get it right and accept what the scriptures teach on it. Everyone says, I'm limiting this to my brethren now, understand. Everyone says we believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't always mean that they actually believe in an actual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we sort of have to have a discussion sometimes as to what really is being said in that. Often I'll read articles, somebody said, I believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they'll spend an entire lesson or an entire article telling us why, even though they believe in it, they don't really believe in it, or it isn't really what they believe in. I'll tell you that I take a very simplistic and literal approach to the subject. Uh, kind of an Occam's razor point of view. The, the most simple view is the view that I take. I believe that the actual Holy Spirit dwells in the body of the redeemed Christian. In other words, I'm just trying not to be ambi ambiguous. I want you to understand what I'm saying as, as I go. I believe that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 verse 38. You probably figured that out from the last lesson we did yesterday. And it seems to me that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the body of the Christian is taught as plainly as any other truth that's found in scriptures. And I don't, and I don't want to be facetious about this or be, sound to be unkind about that, but I think sometimes, brethren, we, and not only on this subject, but on other subjects, we're the ones that muddy the water. We complicate things. So we're going to at least try not to do that. Now, I say to you that th this indwelling is not to be understood in any miraculous or any kind of mysterious way sense. The recipients of the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit do not receive any miraculous abilities. And I've, I, I want to say that if I sound a little bit defensive on this, it's because of sometimes accusations I've dealt with over the years because of the position I take. So I don't want there to be a misunderstanding. And I just want to say to you, there is no material anywhere, sermons, articles, or writings that I've done in uh, other situations that are authored by me that will show I believe anything different than this. I do not believe that the indwelling spirit produces any miraculous gifts within me or any other Christian that receives this gift. 
It is a Bible subject, and I believe it's an important subject. And I believe my conclusions are what the Scriptures teach and that it's part of the whole counsel of God. I believe the rewards and the comforts and the benefits of such an indwelling are enormous. And I think that's why they're in the Scriptures for us to see. It isn't my intent today, although the lessons are going to be long because this lesson is going to be coupled with the lesson in in the worship period today. It's not my intent today to answer every objection to the position I take. I'm willing to discuss, understand. I'm not the person that thinks I can get up, say what I have to say, shoot my wad, so to speak, and then you're out of luck. (laughs) If you want to discuss any part of the lesson today with me, uh, I hope you've already seen I'm willing to discuss wherever we're going. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us separate and apart from the Word in some mysterious way, is not what I believe. Now, maybe I need to go back and say that better, hopefully. One of the misunderstandings that is frequently attributed to my conclusions on this is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us in a separate and apart, separate apart from the work in a mysterious way. Now, to our first charge. There are three positions, basically, that brethren take on the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, and the first one, really, is not one I've seen very much or hardly at all among brethren, but it's all, it is a conclusion that brethren sometimes reach if you take an indwelling position. They, they think that you've taken that position, is what I'm saying. And so some believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian in a distinctly miraculous way, separate from the influence that comes through hearing the, and believing the Word. And this indwelling is alleged to be evidenced through manifestations of His presence through signs and gifts and inspiration. And in this way, enlightenment comes through the prompting of the Spirit. This is, give, this is given precedence over... The revelation that comes from the Holy Scriptures. So if we're kind of um, up in the air, we, 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 did we get it from the Holy Spirit or the Scriptures? We'll take what the Holy Spirit says is, is what they do. And I'll just say to you, there is no credible evidence that, this, that the Holy Spirit is working in this manner today. The other position, though, or, or another position, is what is often called only through the Word. And this position believes that it is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. And this indwelling is said to be representative, a representative indwelling that in that it denies the premise that the Holy Spirit actually indwells the body of the believer. And I, and I put, if you can see the chart, I just put there, where is the passage for this position? And I believe that the only through the word position presented here is a reactionary position to separate and apart, or or, I mean to for separate and apart from the word, for the first position that we discussed. And it's reactionary because, and let me take just a moment to to, uh, talk about this. 
in in the 1940s and then into the 1950s there was uh, uh, and that that kind of went on to about the late 60s or the very early 1970s there was a very heavy charismatic movement uh, in in this country and, and most likely throughout the world in fact if you are a, a Pittsburgher you might remember a, a, a person named Catherine Kuhlman and she was on KDK radio uh, every Saturday night, and she she both preached and and claimed to perform miracles by the Holy Spirit. And there was a fairly large number of people throughout the country that rose to some prominence. People like Benny Hinn and and Oral Roberts, and uh, you know it was a, a movement that represented the first position that we presented here. And I believe. Because of that movement and historically uh, studying that and, and researching that, that we had a reactionary position that we took because of that, and that was only through the word. There is a third way to look at it. In this view, the third view, is in conjunction with the word. This view holds that it is through the word of God, the gospel of Christ, that one is convicted of sin and converted to Christ. However, it is the spirit of God that is working in the process to save and transform the Christian. Titus 3, verse 5, we talked about that. Uh, you know, we're saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. One is saved by obeying the commands of God revealed in his word, Acts, or Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. It is from the Word of God that we learn that the Spirit indwells our bodies, Romans 8, 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Without the Word of God, there would be no indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And without the revelation of Scripture, we would not even know that the Spirit dwells in us. Because there's no miraculous manifestation that tells us that. So we only know because God's Word tells us. Robert Richardson made this point uh, a, a long time before the uh, 20th century. He said, The vain and ignorant enthusiast who prays for a baptism in fire and hopes for dreams and visions and sensible signs and wonders as an attendant upon the impartation of the Spirit is not a whit farther from the truth than the errorist who affirms that the miracles were a necessary and uh, invariable accompaniment of the Spirit's present, and that because such demonstrations are not now given, therefore no Holy Spirit whatsoever is now received. And Christ's promise to be with His people to the end of the world has totally failed. So that's what we've kind of tried to say, that if, if, if the Holy Spirit is not at work today, we retired Him back, you know, in the first century. So I will try the best of my ability to you know, to, to present my understanding with some clarity and with some conciseness. But I'll just tell you, I take a simplistic approach to ask the common questions that I think are standard to di just diligent Bible study. And that is, we're going to ask who or what or when, where and how and why even. So let's begin with who or what. what, what who are we talking about? Well, we're going to start with talking about the Holy Spirit. As I said, we're going to incorporate as, as we go the, the question about the, the indwelling of Christ or the indwelling of God. But we're going to start with 
the very point that we're trying to make is that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, I don't really believe that's disputed, at least on the surface. Uh, and I'm not going to try to take the time to, to, you know, to develop the nature of the Holy Spirit again because we did that on our very first lesson. Um, but we are talking about God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was promised in a different sense and way that he worked in Old Testament times. And my, the chart says, I think, there that he was available in Old Testament times. And it might, a better word might be used than he was manifest in the Old Testament time. And we've looked at passages, and we'll do, we're going to look at them again because some were not present, and it may, may not be clear if we do not do that. But the Holy Spirit was promised in, in a different sense in the way that he was manifest in the Old, Te- in Old Testament times because we have a variety of, pro- of prophecies. Isaiah 44, verse 3, for instance, uh, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and streams upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessings upon thy offering. Ezekiel 36, um, Ezekiel 36, beginning with verse 20, Six says, a new heart will also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my ordinances and do them. Ezekiel 37, I know we're hurrying quite a bit on this, but Ezekiel 37 verse 14 says, And I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, Jehovah, have spoken it and performed it, saith Jehovah. In John 14, beginning, beginning with verse 15, we read, if you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. You know him, for he abideth with you and shall be in you. And I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. Now, I know if you're looking in different translations there, you find the word comforter or the word advocate. Uh, Some translations use the word helper. Uh, All having the same idea. Um, and then uh, John seven thirty seven through 39, uh, in the, now in the last days of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, if we're going to take the time to do that, we might examine some of the words that are used there and, and the figures that are used, but th- I think that's sufficient for us to see that, that we see, I will pour my spirit upon my seed, uh, my new spirit will I put within you, I will put my spirit within you, I will put my spirit in you, uh, uh, he will abide with you and shall be in you, and Jesus said, I will come to you in that way. And then he tells us plainly in John 7 when he talks about this, this living water, he is talking about 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself. This promise is not limited to the, to the revelation of truth. Sometimes we go to these passages and we say, well, uh, you know, th- this is just talking about in the same sense as the New, the New, New Testament talks in, in the idea of revelation, but that's not, that's not the case. Truth was revealed through prophecy in Old Testament times, so he's not talking about truth being revealed through prophecy. Because this is a different way. I'm going I'm to do something different, he's saying. It was not miraculous confirmation of truth because that was often true in the Old Testament as well. And it was not miraculous abilities because the apostles, at at the very least, had in the limited uh, commission uh, the ability to do miracles. So he's not talking about that either. They were prophecies of a spatial and different than ever before a gift of the Holy Spirit that was to be given after the glorification or the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is expressed as being within and to abide with and to be in you. That's the language that he uses there. The promise is of the Holy Spirit himself, not of the Word. While the Word is the sword of the Spirit, no one disputes that. Ephesians 6 verse 17 and it's certainly the mediate by which the sinner is convicted and converted. However, the Word is not the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Word. Now, I'm going to show you a chart that at least as I understand it, each time that I've seen it presented, and I've seen it presented a number of times in a number of formats, the intent seems to be to convince us that whatever the Holy Spirit does, the Word does. Equating the Word with the Spirit. The Word is equal to the Spirit. The Spirit is equal to the Word. And this is a pretty impressive chart, by the way. All right, now I'm, I'm not going to read all those things, but you can see there's a correlation between Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and operation. It instructs, teaches, convicts, you know, gives new birth, uh, uh, revived, God sanctified, so on and so forth. There, there's a pretty extensive list there. And, and confirmation of, of passages that, that make that point. The next chart is the correlating part that says whatever the Holy Spirit does, the Word does. And we have a list of the same Things being said, the Holy Spirit instructs, teaches, convicts, gives new birth, revives, guides. And by the way, I don't deny any of these. I think every one of them is true. I, I agree with every one of them. All right? Uh, sometimes people say, well, what's really being said is that the, that the Holy Spirit is the custodian of the truth. But brother, that just won't get it. It doesn't really answer this, the, the things that are in this chart. Now, You say, well, Dave, you said those things are true. The conclusion is the problem. Because we see that the the Holy Spirit does these things, and the Word does these things, we sometimes, or people sometimes, conclude that the Holy Spirit and the Word are one and the same. But brethren, the Word is the tool of the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the tool of the Holy Spirit. And the real question might better be, would we expect the inspired word to operate separate and apart from the Holy Spirit? That'd be, I think that's a more appropriate question to, to raise. 
It's, it's sort of like saying a mechanic's tools can operate separate and apart from the mechanic. Well, we would never expect that, would we? However, we would not say that the actions of a mechanic are limited to his tools. You, you understand what I'm saying by that? God, through the Holy, the, the Holy Spirit, produced the Word. He, he revealed it. He confirmed it. It, it is to con convict and convert sinners, and we're to use it for that very purpose. But it's the tool that he uses to get that job done. He is not defined by the tool that he, that he made and that he presents. And, and we, would, we would not do that to an individual. If we, you know, you say, you know, what, what do you do? I, I'm a mechanic. I've got a box of tools here. And I use those tools to do mechanic work. Does that define the person as to who he is or to what he does? You see the difference? Who he is, he may be a father or grandfather. Uh, he, 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 may, he may be a farmer. He, he, there may be a lot of things he, he is, but his tools do not define who he is. I, I hope that helps make clear what I'm trying to, to say, say about that. And let me just say, I'm going to set this up for something we're going to talk about a little bit later. In fact, later, uh, you know, this afternoon. If there is even one thing that is done by the Spirit that is not accomplished by the Word, the premise of these kinds of charts, that whatever the Holy Spirit does, the Word does, equating the Word to the Spirit, becomes void. The oneness Pentecostals are famous for these kind of analogous charts. And, and, and what they have is charts that supposedly prove that the similarities between the Father and the Son uh, make them one entity. And what do we do? We refute that by showing, yes, there are, 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 are characteristics and similarities that, that we can put side by side and chart, but what do we do? We show things that the Son did that the Father did not do, or things that the Holy Spirit did that, that, the, that the Father or the Son did not do. And so we refute that that invalid argument by doing that. Okay. So I want you to consider some passages here about the, the who. We'll go back to that uh, uh, a little bit later. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and you, you who have been here all along so you know, Dave, we've been here before. <laughs> and yes, we have. Uh, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, unto the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the gift last yesterday. I hope we were able to present that the gift is the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32 tells us, uh, And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to them that obey him. And then Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 tells us, In whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having also believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promises. Now, 
I'm going to do a little bit of something different here than we did in our preceding lessons in looking at these three verses because I want you to see something that uh, I, I believe is, is at least good for us to see in, the, in these passages. And, and, and what I want you to see is that these three are parallel passages. And I'm, well, I'm always hesitant to say parallel because maybe not, you, you know, we don't have the exact quote, but do we have the same ideas? They're parallel passages in the sense that they contain the same elements. Hear the word, obey, and receive the Holy Spirit. That's the elements that are common in these three passages. Okay. Um, so in Ephesians 1.13, for instance, they heard the word of truth. They believed. Belief infers obedient belief. And they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we'll, we'll return to that thought again a little bit later, too. So I'm just kind of setting us in, in, in at least in a line for us to consider some things. In 2 Timothy 1, and I don't believe I have that on a chart. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 13, Paul said to Timothy there, he said, Hold the pattern of sound words which thou hast heard from me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, guard through the Holy Spirit, which dwelleth in us. And 1 John 3, verse 24, and kind of answering the question, how do we know? Uh, and he that keepeth his commandment abideth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he gave us. So each of these passages tell us who. Not what, but a who. Now remember, if you, if you remember when I gave the list, of who or what, we're eliminating the what by saying who, who, who it is. Okay? And then, you know, when does this happen? When does this happen? Acts 2.38, and, and we're still comparing these three together. It was when they were obedient in their belief. Acts 5.32, those who had been obedient believers. Ephesians 1.13, those who believed inferred obedience. So hear the truth, believe, having obedient faith, and receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, we're sealed with that Spirit. Ephesians 1.13. Now, I'm, I ask a question, and, and I'm, I'm going to divert here the last few minutes. So I want to ask the question, and we're going to just break here, and we'll finish the things we want to say in the, in the, in the second period or the second, second lesson. I ask, at the time of baptism, is this when the temple is prepared for the Holy Spirit's dwelling? Is that when it's prepared? And I'm not saying as a result of baptism. I'm saying as a, a, a result of being redeemed and as a result of being regenerated and, 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 and being purified. Is that why that happens then? Something for you to think about. Now, there's something I wanted to, uh, 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 to sort of address. And... By that, yesterday, when we talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit, I raised some questions. 
So this this is not part of that lesson. This, I'm just going back, use this time to uh, 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 address a couple of things. Um, and, and that is, I raised some questions, and the question that, that I raised is uh, pointing out that how we approach the, the subject of uh, the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit has a direct effect upon uh, our view of prayer and providence. And so I ask, you know, is God active? Is he intervening? Is, is, is he still uh, alive and working and uh, beneficial to us today? Do we expect God to react to us to help us, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to read all, all the questions I have because I want to sum them up by saying, and, and someone suggested this and from the audience, and I appreciated that, said, you didn't really answer the questions. <laughs> uh, and I, I, didn't, I didn't just focus on the questions and answer them one by one, and, and that's true because I'll just tell you at least what my intent was. My intent was for them to be rhetorical by the time we finished the lesson, so if we were thinking about those questions, we would come to a natural conclusion of, of them. But years ago, I preached a sermon, and I said at the end of the sermon, because I thought I was out of time, I said, that's the sermon you all make application. And a school teacher came out, and she said, I want to tell you, Brother Brewer, don't ever do that again. She said, you make the application that you intend for us to make, because we'll probably get it wrong. <laughs> so... I, I give you more credit than that, all right? But sometimes we don't make the application, and so uh, thinking that it would be kind of reflective uh, and rhetorical, I, I, I didn't really address that. But I'm willing to. And I just wanted to include, uh, you know, a, a handful of passages about uh, God being one who works and accomplishes, and, and that we can have confidence in, for instance, when we pray and when we seek his guidance and his protection. Ephesians chapter 6, or 3, I'm sorry, for instance, verse 16, uh, verse 20 really says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now, this isn't my sermon. I'm just I'm going to point you to these passages, but, you know, think about what it says to us. The power that works in us. In James chapter 5, uh, the question is raised in James about those that are suffering or those that are sick. And, and James says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. If anyone... Among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. So what's he's telling us? Have confidence in prayer. God will answer prayers. All right. There's an interesting uh, addendum, to, at least to my thought here. It's not an addendum to the, the passage, but uh, you know, James says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The King James says subject to like passions like we are. Uh, with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months, and he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Why does he put that in there? He's not just reminding us of this incident with, with uh, Elijah. He is telling us we can be people like Elijah and confidence in our prayers like Elijah did. That's, that's what I believe his point is. In Hebrews 4, 
verse 6. The writer there says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what that is? That's God inviting us to his throne to pray. What a tremendous privilege it is for God to say, in effect, you come talk to me when you need something. John 14 verse 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Matthew 7 verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22. And I started, and I just dropped this one in the lesson yesterday. James 1 and verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. There's a neat little thing in that, by the way, when it says without reproach. The King James says, upbraideth not. It, it, it's like, at least my understanding of, that, of the idea is, is that we, we ask God for... The, the example here is wisdom. We ask God for wisdom. And God doesn't say, you doofus, you should have already had wisdom. I mean, you've been around long enough, you ought to have known this, or you don't know how to do this. He doesn't do that. He says, you ask for wisdom. He don't reproach you for what you should or maybe don't know. He said, ask of God. And he gives liberally. And it will be given to him. So I hope that helps answer the questions that I raised to say, here are scriptural things. God says for us to have confidence that God is alive and well and working today. And we need to have confidence in that. Thank you.